Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today, we're going to hear an account of the prominent role that one Facebook executive has played in U.S. and global politics, making key decisions that over the years have literally been engineered into Facebook and its policies. For that, we hear from the author of a Wired cover story titled, The Infinite Reach of Joel Kaplan, Facebook's Man in Washington. My name is Ben Walker, and I'm a contributing writer at Wired Magazine, based at Stanford Law School. We have written the cover story for Wired Magazine, The Fixer, about Joel Kaplan, Mark Zuckerberg's chief Washington operative in in D.C. for Facebook. You start with an account of Kaplan's role in shaping Facebook's response to some very inflammatory words in the height of the unrest following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. So you have former President Donald Trump. He's posted an incendiary missive on Facebook, pledging the support of the U.S. military to stop protests. And he appended with it what you call a hellish augury, the phrase, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. So take us through these events and why you chose to start this examination of Joel Kaplan's role at Facebook with this moment. Yeah, so there are two reasons why this is a perfect illustration of the power and importance quietly behind the scenes of someone like Kaplan. The first is that this is a perfect crisis for Facebook. In this moment, four years of Zuckerberg walking this tightrope are coming to an absolute head. Trump's post is slammed by the left, who sees it as an incitement to violence, and think that the post should come down. And the right, conservative right in America, views this as a litmus test about whether or not Facebook is really committed to free speech and is very much wrapped up in a giant campaign uh, that's been waged to suggest that Facebook is anti-conservative for a lot of complicated reasons. It looks for a moment that there's no way to escape this, that Zuckerberg is going to have to choose. Does the post stay up or does it come down? And the story, as we've known it, publicly unfolds one way, that Trump you know, calls Zuckerberg essentially to ask for forgiveness and then writes this follow-up post that basically clarifies his original stance that this is not an incitement to violence, that it's really a prediction, you know, of future events, a warning, which, you know, makes the post basically kosher and magically puts the post out of incitement to violence, which is a violation of Facebook's community standards, and into the green zone of being allowed to stay on Facebook. But behind the scenes was another story going on, which hasn't been reported, that in fact, Trump did call Zuckerberg, but only after Zuckerberg personally called the White House to urge, really plead personally for an audience with Trump. And the person who arranged that phone call was the head of Facebook's Washington office, Zuckerberg's sort of chief conciliary in Washington, Joel Kaplan, who was listening silently on this call and had been in touch with the White House throughout that morning. And people who heard this call said that Zuckerberg described having a staff problem and that he had a tone of um, seeming to need Trump to, quote, bail him out. That wasn't Zuckerberg's quote, but people who'd heard this call listened to the urgency in Zuckerberg's voice and understood for the first time just how important it was for Zuckerberg politically to enlist 
Trump basically in the solution to how they were going to get out of this political dilemma. And so the reason that we start with this is because it's a perfect crisis in many ways for Facebook. And it's a perfect illustration of Facebook's chief fixer, and that is Kaplan. This is not the first time that Joel Kaplan has found himself at a turning point in history. Take us back 20 years. Where did Joel Kaplan get his start in politics? Kaplan's political start follows after he graduates from Harvard Law School in the late 1990s, where he changes his registration from a Democrat to a Republican, and he starts rocketing through the elite conservative ranks as a clerk to Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, you know, a coveted clerkship in the upper intelligentsia of conservative American legal thought. The summer after ending his clerkship with Scalia, goes to work on the Bush campaign uh, in the summer of 2000. And by accident or cosmic misfortune, Kaplan is thrown into maybe the central event of Bush v. Gore, which is the counting of the votes in Miami-Dade County. That election, of course, came down to Florida. Florida came down to these three counties. These three counties, in many ways, came down to Miami-Dade. And Miami-Dade came down to about 10,000 votes in one room on the 19th floor of a government building called the Clark Center, where Kaplan was assigned as an election observer. That day, um, this is in November, was the ignominious event uh, of something that later became known as the Brooks Brothers Riot. And in a nutshell, basically, conservative operatives, many from Washington, D.C., as well as other activists, more or less stormed the outside of an election office that was counting, doing a, a hand recount that had been ordered by the Florida Supreme Court. There's a lot of debate about how rowdy and, and how violent this protest was, but it's believed that at least 50 to 80 people packed into a small room and tried to stop the count. And they tried to stop the count by basically fighting for the door um, that led into the election office uh, where the hand count was was going. I think the difference in the uh, at this point in the votes between Bush and Gore was somewhere between two and 300 votes separated the two candidates. And these were 10,000 votes that hadn't been properly counted in heavily Democratic leading Miami-Dade. And for reasons that actually conservative operatives were quite candid about years later, they simply did not want those votes counted. Now, they have a legal rationale for this. It's very complicated that we could get into. It's not worth getting into. But the point is that one person actually who was in, in many ways leading this, I don't want to call it a, a mob, a group of protesters, Democrats call it a mob, Republicans call it a protest group, was a Republican congressman named John Sweeney, who told operatives around him that he thought that if Gore took the lead in Miami-Dade Miami by one vote, the election was over, and that it was his goal to make sure that Gore did not take a lead by even one vote in Miami-Dade. So that's the context. This crowd came, stormed the vestibule, fought for the door, in some cases got physical with people and vote counters trying to get through the crowd. Democrats would later claim they were kicked. One named Joe Geller claimed he was punched. Was this protest violent? You know, it was going right up to the line and kicking dirt over it. Inside, on the other side of the door is Joel Kaplan, along with three other vote counters. And the chair of the Board of Elections, a man named David Leahy, pleads with the Bush campaign to go out and stop the protest because they can't count the votes. 
We know this, by the way, because of it was almost certainly captured on audio, but it's recounted in a near contemporaneous account by Jake Tapper, interestingly, who was then Washington assignment writer who was uh, covering Bush v. Gore. And their conversation is captured uh, in our story printed from Tapper's book. Leahy says, we can't count the votes until the protests are cleared. Will the representatives from the Bush campaign go out and speak to the crowd? And Kaplan and another observer drag their feet, they hem and they haw, and they basically say, no, you know, we're not going to do that, you know, unless the board basically commits to, you know, relocating the vote count downstairs. That happens. And a few hours later, for reasons that are hotly debated, but at least partly because of under intense pressure from this protest, Leahy and the board of canvassers in Miami decide they're going to stop the count. The Gore lawyers are stunned. The Bush lawyers are thrilled. Many people look back and say that Bush v. Gore was decided that day, that afternoon on the 19th floor of the Clark Center. And perhaps history would have unfolded a different way if Kaplan, a young Kaplan, I think he was then 30 or 31, had gone out and told the protesters to calm down. Later, it was revealed that many of these protesters who had reportedly kicked and punched, fought for the door, tried to stop the count, uh, were not in fact local activists. They were Washington, D.C. operatives. They were identified later in video footage. Some had come from the NRCC. Some had come from the RNC. Several had come from congressional offices from Washington. It brought into starker relief, you know, whether Kaplan might have had an, uh, you know, an impact. He certainly knew at least some of these people. What, there's at least one who was uh, a staffer on the Bush campaign. His name is Matt Schlapp, who later had a very prominent role in the Republican Party during during the Trump administration. In any case, uh, Kaplan then goes into uh, the Bush administration. He's beloved. He's, you know, a truly, you know, uh, he's a loyal soldier who is one of the very few people to stay all eight years in the Bush administration. He uh, eventually rises to deputy chief of staff. And in that job, you're overseeing just a huge panoply of domestic policy issues. And, you know, this isn't in the story, but, you know, if you have driven in a car Uh, with low mileage standards, or you have gone to the airport and walked through TSA, or you have made a a call overseas and wondered if the government was wiretapping your call, you have lived in the world that Joel Kaplan has built. So Kaplan has played a very influential role in American politics, it's safe to say. He was influential in many of the main policies of the Bush administration. I'll give you just one anecdote that's different from the one in the story. There's, There's a story about the EPA that I don't know how interesting it is to your tech listeners. Kaplan, as we report, was influential in the Bush White House's last minute decision not to regulate greenhouse gases. There's a little known conflict. Bush's own director of the EPA wanted to regulate greenhouse gases. He wanted climate change to be Bush's legacy. Hard to believe, but could have gone down a very different way if history had played out differently. Kaplan intervened and said no. Uh, Again, and again, you see these examples where history might have gone just such a different way. And you wonder why. And there's Kaplan playing some role. I'll give you another example, which is, you know, Kaplan was a, a, you know, an expert negotiator, hugely respected on the Hill by both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, he's got sterling relationships on both sides of the aisle, has a good political operative must. He was dispatched to the Hill to negotiate with Democrats on the FISA law. You might remember in the Bush years, warrantless wiretapping. Kaplan went to congressional Democrats and struck a compromise to, to rewrite the FISA law and negotiated successfully with Democrats. 
Then Bush tried to pass immigration reform. It was the last real serious effort we've seen in the United States of, of major you know, immigration overhaul. And Kaplan is again sent and dispatched to negotiate on the Hill. Democrats were overwhelmingly in favor of Bush's immigration reform, but it was dashed on the rocks of Republican opposition. Republicans turned on their own president. It's one of the first real early moments we actually see a glimmer of Trumpism 10 years later, where immigration becomes the Republican id of, of Washington politics. So Kaplan negotiates successfully with Democrats, and then he tries to negotiate for immigration, and it blows up as this massive failure because Republicans turned on their own president. And someone who worked with Kaplan in the White House actually told me that from the FISA negotiations, Kaplan learned that Democrats could be reasoned with. But from the immigration debacle, he learned the importance of keeping Republicans on your side and what can go wrong when you don't. And it's a lesson that he would take, I think, to heart for the next 10 years at Facebook, that Democrats can be negotiated with, but Republicans will play hardball. So let's talk a little bit about how Kaplan ends up at Facebook, because this is actually another kind of quirk of history. Turns out he had dated a young Sheryl Sandberg while at Harvard. Kaplan met Sheryl Sandberg on the very first night of Harvard orientation in 1987. They dated briefly that year and remained friends. They did keep up a cordial relationship. In fact, they crossed paths uh, one day in January 2000, just before Kaplan went into the Bush White House. Sandberg, leaving the Treasury Department, actually threw a little brunch to welcome the Bush staffers to Washington. Clinton staffers were still very bitter about Kaplan's role at Bush v. Gore, and some people at the party wouldn't talk to Kaplan. And so they had kept up this you know, very cordial Washington relationship in the way Democrats and Republicans you know, do. Kaplan left the Bush White House after eight years. He was one of the very few people who stayed all eight years. And he went to work very briefly you know, for an energy company in Texas. And Sandberg, who had just taken the helm of Zuckerberg's company and was building this advertising behemoth, was looking for someone basically to help lead this incredibly small Washington office for Facebook. I mean, I think it had, you know, by 2007 or 2008, just three or four people. The Washington office at that time was led not by Kaplan, actually, but by Marin Levine, who is, a, again, a longtime Sandberg friend. But Kaplan gets recruited, basically, to, to lead U.S. domestic policy in 2011. Facebook's issues at that time weren't about regulation. You know, they were about image, basically, you know, helping congresspersons, you know, learn how to use Facebook hosting, for lack of a better word, you know, diplomatic missions with members of Congress who would come into the Facebook office. But over time, Kaplan made his value clear, you know, during the Edward Snowden crisis of the Obama administration. Zuckerberg goes to meet Obama in the Oval Office, and it's Joel Kaplan who accompanies him for that meeting, um, not Sandberg, not Levine. Come 2020, Levine moves to Instagram, and Kaplan, you know, is elevated to the top job in Washington as the global head of public policy in 2014. You know, he brought a, you know, very beltway style to solving problems. Staffers really liked his leadership and admire his leadership. You know, he was a former Marine for two years uh, in the 1990s between Harvard and law school and, you know, ha had a certain esprit de corps, um, certainly with the men in the office who, you know, liked, uh, you know, that Kaplan would sometimes reference, you know, JJ did tie buckle is the motto of the, you know, the, four, the 14 values of the Marine Corps. But women, too, also thought that he was an even-minded and fair-minded manager. 
you know, he had a great deal of admiration in the office. He's incredibly charming. One person told me he could talk to a wall and the wall would have a great day. He'll sort of charm the shit out of you, was the quote that one person told me, including people who were sort of suspicious of Kaplan. And the suspicion came from a certain beltway, you know, approach that clashed in some sense with, you know, the tech ethos of, of a company who had, you know, been famously founded on the credo of move fast and break things. Kaplan had an idea of, you know, be very cautious and, you know, make sure all sides, you know, are sort of kept at bay. And early disputes about Facebook's policy, for instance, for firearm ownership, Kaplan wanted to make sure, you know, the company wasn't falling afoul of the NRA, for instance. Throughout this period, you know, there's this rumbling happening in the Republican Party. And, you know, in the summer of 2015, this game show host named Donald Trump comes down this long escalator and announces his candidacy for president. Like any company or political operative in Washington, you know, Kaplan and plenty of people at Facebook are squinting at Trump and trying to figure out what this means for the Republican Party as Trump slowly starts to gain steam. He's slowly rising in the polls. He's slowly starting to, you know, we see him on the debate stage vanquishing his opponents. So in December 2015, candidate Trump proposes banning all Muslims from entering the United States. He posts these remarks on his Facebook page, and even Republican staffers apparently thought the video violated the company's hate speech policy. But then Kaplan steps in. So this is a big moment in the history of Facebook. Facebook is still, hard as it may be to believe, a young company whose political footing is sort of uncertain. And Facebook has a real decision to make because this is 100%, as you said, a violation of Facebook's standards. There's an emergency meeting that's basically convened. It's convened between the Washington office, Menlo Park. Kaplan actually beams in from India, where he's part of a delegation, basically, with the Indian government. But Kaplan is beamed into this meeting, and Kaplan is, by accounts, the first to speak up and say, we can't touch this video. If we do, there will be a major backlash from the Republican Party. Um, This is a candidate running for president of the United States. He's a candidate in good standing. He may be violating our policies, but as a a warning, basically, to the executives at this office, Sandberg is there, Elliot Schrag is there, others are there. He's the first to warn the company that there will be a major backlash if this video is frozen, if it's shielded, if it's taken down. You know, it will be viewed as censorship. And the quote that's you know, most famously reported, it's actually not our quote, it comes from the great reporters at the New York Times, that Kaplan says, don't poke the bear, that taking down Trump's video or censoring it or stopping its spread would be the equivalent of poking the bear, you know, the bear being the Republican Party. And after this comment, you know, the group discussion quickly converges on that consensus. And so again, you see Kaplan not snapping his fingers and making this decision, but, you know, using his powers of persuasion, you know, to move the group towards this consensus. And literally by the end of this meeting, the executives, Zuckerberg's not present, but would later be briefed on this. The executives have basically invented what comes to be known as the newsworthiness exemption. The idea that, you know, if you were a politician or a public figure, statements that would ordinarily be clear-cut violations of community standards don't apply or are overridden basically by, you know, a a concern for the users of Facebook and newsworthiness that they should know what their candidates are saying. And people who were there for these events and, you know, lived through them, you know, felt like this was a major turning point for Facebook. And so once again, you've got 
a major turning point in history in Kaplan is there and playing a not insignificant role. It was a moment when Facebook decided that, you know, they weren't going to referee politics or try to shape political events, but sort of be a bystander to them. And obviously that's a hotly debated question about whether or not they they made the right decision. People years later would draw a line between that decision and, you know, a cascade of decisions that followed that people thought were appeasing the Trump White House and, and basically, you know, the Trump political movement and conservatism and the extent to which they relied on, on social media and Facebook, you know, to make that political movement a reality. So I want to talk a little bit about how some of these decisions end up getting literally engineered into Facebook. You know, you bring up this effort that came along a little later, this Common Ground project. So Facebook has been accused of exacerbating political polarization in the U.S., helping to cause discord. And it looks like some of Facebook's own staff and civic integrity are working on this problem. And we know now from the Francis Haugen leaks that they had done their own research and were aware that this extreme group of partisan users are sort of disproportionately responsible for the trouble, and that, in fact, right-leaning accounts are more of a share of the problem, perhaps, than others. So Kaplan steps in, and you've got, again, these civic integrity staff on the one hand who are proposing an engineering solution, something that would have potentially perhaps reduced the platform's role in exacerbating polarization. It's a great example of Kaplan's decision-making. So as a quick note, I'll just say, Trump wins the election, surprise, (laughs) spoiler, And almost overnight, people describe Kaplan's power increasing exponentially, that this was an office and a role that was thinking, you know, sort of obliquely about policy questions like what should Facebook's stance on firearm sales be on the platform, right? And changing to a role that basically is injected um, and Kaplan is injected into the marrow of core decisions about what Facebook is, which is speech, the ideas that can be exchanged how they're exchanged, you know, the reach of algorithms. Kaplan's a lawyer. And very quickly, you have a clash of engineers and data scientists who have made their life's work designing and executing social media and the systems that run them. And a lawyer, you know, who is thinking broadly about the political consequences of what they're doing. And this tension comes to a head perfectly, you know, in, in this program that's called Common Ground. It was first reported by the Wall Street Journal several years ago. And we know so much more about it now because of the Facebook papers. What Common Ground was, was what some staffers called a Facebook solution to America's polarization crisis. A Facebook solution was what staffers were encouraged to think of as something broad, something big, something bold, you know, a towering effort basically to solve big problems. And what Common Ground basically was, was a suite of programmatic changes to the platform that would have changed the experience on the platform in the simplest explanation to sort of dial down the partisan acrimony of the experience of most people on the platform, but also the influence and the viral reach of people who built their brand using algorithms that very clearly now rewarded, you know, partisan outrage. Kara Swisher, I think, says it best, use a phrase, enragement equals engagement. And this was a movement inside Facebook of cross-jurisdictional team that was literally taking that concept of the algorithm and putting it in the bullseye. And so we know from internal documents at Facebook, for instance, that, you know, that researchers had found a correlation between Facebook use and what's called affective polarization, which is basically 
hatred of the other side, trumping all logic and reason. And their solution was um, this sort of three-pronged effort, you know, to reduce polarization, you know, what they called, quote, aggressive interventions. And they were going to tweak news consumption, you know, to rebalance media diets, basically, perhaps, you know, instead of your uncle, you know, receiving, um, you know, some crackpot news story, they might instead see the Wall Street Journal. You know, they were going to try to, you know, what they called self-segregation. They were going to try to replace that with more cross overlay of different viewpoints. So you'd be exposed to different viewpoints. You know, they were going to try to build systems that replaced incivility with, quote, good conversations. I mean, these are right out of the slide decks from what the Common Ground team was doing. And they did this with a number of you know, uh, programmatic proposals and people were incredibly excited. They hung signs around the Menlo Park office, you know, which is what teams do at Facebook when they're working on a big project. And these signs said things like reduce hate and reduce polarization. And there was, you know, tremendous excitement around this project. And there was one problem that these engineers hadn't, I don't think, fully realized, which is that in the new system at Facebook after Trump's election, these ideas now had to go through a review process overseen by Joel Kaplan. And that's where things ran aground. You know, Kaplan oversaw basically a, a policy review process that was called Eat Your Veggies, in which engineers basically had to be asked, you know, questions about the political implications or ramifications of some of these ideas. And Kaplan is a great and very talented interlocutor. He's a great lawyer. You know, if you can sort of imagine, you know, a great prosecutor who can sort of unravel someone on the stand people at Facebook say Kaplan is extraordinary at this. I mean, he can make almost any idea, you know, seem foolish or, you know, lacking for some, you know, specific detail, even when many people felt like the spirit of what Common Ground was doing was, was really good. And so Kaplan leads these sessions and most of the ideas that would have had a greatest effect in the United States basically get killed. A few of them are brought to Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg also personally asks some of these ideas to be diminished or vetoes them. So, but, you know, a combination between Kaplan and Zuckerberg act as this filter for an idea that engineers really felt like was a positive step for making Facebook like a less polarized place. What conservatives at Facebook will tell you, and you might find this interesting because this isn't in our reporting, but it's true. What I'm about to tell you is, you know, conservatives at Facebook say that this was a very idealistic, very nice idea by left-leaning progressive engineers at the company who weren't living in political reality, that after Trump won, you couldn't just play around, you know, with Facebook's algorithm because it would have big political consequences in a new reality where Republicans control all three branches of government. Well, you know, we control Congress and the White House in Washington. And, you know, that the umbrage that they took was really sort of naive. They never used that seed naive. And, you know, the phrase eat your veggies was the name of this review process, this star chamber, basically, that these engineers had to come and face Kaplan. You know, engineers, on the other hand, were really offended and kind of outraged, basically, by the notion that it'd be called eat your veggies. You know, it conveyed the feeding of hard truths to idealistic liberals. You know, I spoke to people on the other side of that inquiry who felt precisely that it was Kaplan and the policy team who they were trying to get to eat their veggies. In other words, you know, they felt like, and this is especially true in the civic integrity team, that Facebook was almost like a child that just wanted to eat dessert all the time. That if you have a media diet that's just giving you a cortisol rush of enraged news, you know, that's designed to keep you addicted onto the platform, 
that's almost like a sugar rush. It's a diet based on something fundamentally unhealthy. And in fact, you see this in the Common Ground slide decks where they're talking about healthy news diets. And so, uh, you know, the Common Ground people thought that this, you know, by Kaplan calling this review process, eat your veggies, that it was almost this sort of cynical genius rhetorical jujitsu in which he sort of took the spirit of what they were trying to do and kind of turned it on them. But in, in their defense, you know, I will say one thing that I do think people will debate about common ground, but I'll sort of, you know, one detail that's not reported, but I think is important for your readers to know was that Kaplan at one point called common ground paternalistic, basically by, by suggesting that conservatives needed, you know, to, to rebalance their media diets. Kaplan and other conservatives at, at Facebook, you know, they framed common ground as this effort by, you know, naive le- leftists. But people at common ground do not think that this was an effort by left-wing progressives. In fact, common ground was actually hugely influenced by the work of a sociologist named Jonathan Haidt, who is America's chief moderate, and progressives really don't like Jonathan Haidt. He's sort of a tut-tutting you know, moral psychologist who has taken aim at cancel culture. He thinks the left is really out of control. And in fact, several of Haidt's former students were actually on the Common Ground Project, working directly to take Haidt's ideas, um, you know, about civil engagement um, and apply them basically to take Jonathan Haidt's ideas and, and make them real on Facebook. So it was certainly news to the people at Common Ground that this was some naive leftist progressive effort to sort of um, rein in conservatives. And in fact, by the way, I'll just say one quick thing, if people really care about common ground, even the, the lefties at Facebook were reticent about common ground. I mean, so the conservatives have framed common ground as this naive lefty project. The people at common ground were not naive lefties. And also the lefties at Facebook did not think that common ground was this big liberal chimera. In fact, one person told me who was, she's you know very progressive, that you know, she told me that Common Ground would have elevated Martin Luther King, proverbially, at the expense of Malcolm X, that more strident voices on the left actually would have been punished under Common Ground. So it calls into question, basically, I think this conservative framing that Common Ground was just this sort of lefty pipe dream. So that's probably more detail than you need to know about Common Ground, but that didn't make it in. And I always thought that was interesting. I think she's right. You know, and there are a lot of people even now talking about what to do about polarization on social media that don't understand that point. They think, oh, you turn the dial and you put people back together and that's great. But what you end up doing is in fact diminishing the extremes. That also gave me pause that common ground was an idea that would proverbially elevate Martin Luther King, but punish the speech of Malcolm X. And sometimes in our discourse, you need a little Malcolm X. Right. Do I want to punish extremist environmental activists? Maybe extremism is necessary. The civil rights movement's a really good example. I think that's an instructive one, but I guess let me rephrase this because the thing I'm trying to ask is, it seems like the sum of Joel Kaplan's decisions have favored an extremist outcome. They have favored a particular extreme with a political valence to the right. Do you think that's true? Well, I'll put aside my personal views after reporting this for a year and just appeal to your listeners to look at the data. I mean, the data is fairly convincing that that's what has happened. Now, there's a lot of debate about why it's happened, but Facebook has known internally, and the Facebook papers evinced this point again and again, Facebook's own researchers have long known right-leaning content is amplified more. And, you know, what we might call hard right, you know, if there is such a thing as hard left, they don't, as such as it is, hard right 
content is rewarded often without penalty. And in fact, there's a great study from NYU that we mentioned in this you know, story that you know, more or less shows that in the you know, six months before the 2020 election and then January 6th, exactly what I just said, right-leaning content was amplified much further you know, than what might be sort of, you know, was coded as centrist content, like a Wall Street Journal article, for instance, and hard right or far right by far outperformed every other category, including misinformation. And that you would think that there would be a, you know, proverbial penalty for misinformation, right? You would think that, you know, they looked at misinformation, both of the, the far left and the far right, and actually misinformation of a centrist valence. So misinformation of a centrist kind would be, you know, you know, you'll never believe, you know, these 11 things that can cure your dog of eating chocolate, you know, if it's false, but it's not political left or right, right? This is the study. And what they found was that left-wing misinformation or hard left misinformation and centrist misinformation did incur a kind of penalty. They were using crowd tangle data to show this, a penalty being it underperformed, you know, what the average sort of distribution of content would be. But that hard right misinformation not only didn't receive a penalty, but outperformed the median average of distribution and amplification for baseline content. And so it raises all sorts of questions, you know, about the algorithm. It raises questions about, you know, the culmination of decisions, um, you know, made through four years in which Kaplan has been, you know, really closely involved. I mean, just, you know, to give you, you know, just to give you another example, you know, and this has been reported by the Washington Post. We did some reporting, but didn't publish it, you know, about a project called Worst of the Worst, which was an effort to retool Facebook's hate speech algorithm. And it's, you know, incredibly complex. And, but, you know, long story short, Kaplan had a key role in, in those decisions, basically, which is, you know, about what types of groups basically are, you know, especially protected or come under fire, um, you know, by people uttering just, you know, heinous things, basically, about people of certain group membership or minorities or backgrounds, whether they're gay, whether they're black or Latino. And so it would probably be the work of a, you know, a lifetime research endeavor, basically, to try to catalog at every granular level, every decision that, you know, Kaplan has had a role in. But what almost everybody close to Kaplan and on the policy team, you know, have told, you know, walked away and, and told me is, you know, that the history of Kaplan is now a history of Facebook itself. It's partly why this story is so long and feels like a history, because, you know, his thinking about issues, especially on content moderation, is so enmeshed in the architecture of Facebook itself. And so it, it, it creates a curious paradox where he and, and Facebook decisions are one in a kind of singularity because he's so enmeshed in the decision-making process. And yet he's not singularly responsible for the way that these algorithms have bared out and created the reality we live in. And so he's in, you know, completely responsible and not responsible at all at the same time. And you see Facebook staffers really struggling basically with this paradox of how much responsibility to sort of unload on Kaplan. The one thing I will say that I think is a, you know, a clear, concise, tangible reform that Facebook could make tomorrow that lots of people will tell you about Kaplan is that Facebook has a very unusual structure. It's unusual in that the pipeline of decisions that make hard choices about the algorithm and content moderation and the team that lobbies elected officials, both are wired to go through Kaplan. And that's very unusual. And in some sense, you know, the most benign way to look at Kaplan is that he is in a position that is inherently 
beset by a kind of conflict of interest. Um, lots of people feel this way, some people disagree, but you know, it would be as if, just to put this in perspective, the best analogy I heard was, you know, imagine if ExxonMobil, you know, had a structure in which the de- department that was in charge of setting regional gas prices and the department that was in charge of government relations both reported to the same guy. I think we all know what would happen. I think we know that if there was a tough vote coming up in Congress, some of those swing congressmen might see gas prices go down in their district, right? You know, it's not quite the fox guarding the hen house, but it's perhaps troublesome that people who are, you know, a division at Facebook that is charged with making policies about speech and what kind of political speech can go on the platform report to the same person who's in charge of staying in good standing with many of the politicians who want that speech to stay. It suggests, one, that it's a recipe maybe for bad outcomes. Certainly lots of reformers think that. Uh, The former head of civic integrity, Samit Chakrabarty, in the former CSO Alex Stamos are two examples of prominent people who fiercely believe that these two teams basically should be decoupled from Kaplan. But it's a, a chair second, a charitable way of looking at it is, you know, anybody in Kaplan's role would then become a person of controversy. And so I think the most benign way of looking at this is he occupies a role in which almost any decision because of the structure of Facebook that they make is going to, I think, you know, come under suspicion. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. So you end up in perhaps an obvious place, which is January 6th. And this is an endpoint chronologically, but also conceptually for you in this piece. Precisely because what you mentioned earlier, that the history of Facebook is now a kind of history of Kaplan. And I don't say that frivolously. I'll give one example that is a scoop in our story that gives an example of decisions that Kaplan would be a part of that would redound in portentous ways, basically, on January 6th. So, and, and also speak exactly to this conflict of interest or, you know, the implications of what can happen when the person who's running government and the person making key speech decisions is the same person. So in 2019, there was a major election in India in the spring of 2019. And the civic integrity team was using a protocol, an automated protocol, to basically combat civic spam, which didn't rise to the level of coordinated inauthentic behavior, CIB, which is Facebook's sort of big bugaboo, but you know, w- was looking at targeting things that while they weren't violative, while they didn't say, you know, I want to kill Democrats or I want to behead Republicans, they were these fuzzier gray area, authentic networks that were spreading information 
that could have huge electoral consequences in, in the Indian election. Basically, what these protocols were doing was they were doing in India what the protocols in the United States were often doing, which is by implementing a neutral policy, they had the effect of flagging conservative electoral speech more because there were more violations on that side of the political spectrum in India, just as in the United States. That spring, Kaplan actually flies to India and is called before basically you know, the equivalent of a subcommittee in parliament, where according to Reuters, he's grilled about the effect of Facebook's algorithms in political speech in India, because the BJP party, which is the ruling you know, conservative party of Narendra Modi, is seeing these networks that are you know, passing along civic spam or propaganda, sort of partisan material in an effort to swing the election are getting flagged and shut down. And so the civic spam protocol at Facebook gets flagged to Kaplan in this way. And a few days before the Indian election begins, the civic spam protocol is shut down. The enforcement of not just civic spam, but all domestic coordinated inauthentic behavior is frozen, not just in India, but globally. So think about what I'm saying. There were no cops on the beat for six months in the year 2019. And as far as I know, it hasn't been reported, but maybe it has. But these dragnets, these filters that were designed to stop bad actors from meddling in elections and doing all sorts of other things in a domestic context, these two protocols, one called civic spam, one called domestic coordinated and authentic behavior were frozen, never publicized. Facebook quietly presented to the world that they were still enforcing these policies, but they froze them to do an internal investigation, basically, about why these protocols were flagging you know, right-leaning voices more than left-leaning ones in the Indian context. And when the investigative team in Facebook started kicking the tires on these protocols, they ran experimental reviews, basically, inside the United States using Facebook data. And what they found was that the classifier was flagging, just like in India, in the United States, when they ran these classifiers, they were flagging right-leaning publishers like the Daily Wire and, and Sinclair, for example, for domestic coordinated inauthentic behavior. Because these you know, information networks were highly networked, and you know, there was a high degree of misinformation. It matched what the protocol was looking for. But it wasn't violation of community standards and the fact that there was violence, right? Or the fact that there was you know, incitement to violence. It was in this gray zone. And that's what the protocols were trying to do. They were trying to look at things that on the surface you know, could present as political activity, keep January 6th in the back of your mind, but actually had a more nefarious purpose underneath, right? And so for six months, these classifiers are frozen. I think actually one is frozen for three months, the other for six months. And in the fall, when Facebook restores these protocols, they've raised the bar higher. Meetings, uh, you know, people familiar with the meetings of decisions by Joel Kaplan and another vice president, Guy Rosen, you know, described that the standard now was higher to catch people for domestic coordinated inauthentic behavior. You know, now you had to have a past history of serious offenses like graphic violence or incitement or terrorism. And that was the way that you would catch people for domestic CIB. 
And the reason that someone told me that they did this, the reason that they actually made it harder to enforce policies against domestic CIB was that it would be, quote, ultra defensible if they were called before Congress, if they were called out in the press, if they came under fire from conservatives or anybody, you know, about why did I get taken down from Facebook? And and this was you know, going to be their answer. Now, you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with January 6th? Well, I talked to someone who was actually very close with Kaplan. Her name's Katie Harbath. She's you know, fairly well known, has now left Facebook, but ran their global elections team and remembered this episode. And in her view, this decision basically to change the policies because you know, the effect they were having on conservative speech in India and change them globally, you know, there is you know, a line now, whether, you know, between that event and January 6th, now whether it's metaphorically or allegorically, but, you know, the connection is, is instructive. You know, she, she told me the court, you know, the, the, the coordinated authentic behavior problem in India was very similar to the kind of issue that, you know, presented itself in the fall of 2020 and just before January 6th, it was highly coordinated networks of civic actors claiming, you know, earnestly to be part of a political movement that the election was stolen. But because they didn't have this past history under the new standard of, you know, violence uh, or incitement or terrorism, you know, one of the reasons it was hard to crack down on the network of Stop the Steal was because of the policy that was created in the aftermath of the India decision, which Kaplan was directly involved in. It's not the only reason, but we know that connection because Facebook's internal researchers said so themselves in Haugen's documents um, and first reported by BuzzFeed, you know, is a basically an internal review team looking at how Stop the Steal basically got through the cracks. And one of the reasons they say is these actors, you know, were earnestly building this movement about an election being stolen and they didn't have a prior history of, you know, incitement or terrorism, which is the new bar. And so I talked to someone in civic integrity who put it this way. In this moment, you can see the concern of having someone of immense power like Kaplan, who has the power to influence major policies about speech and enforcement of, speeches that can, of speech that can have major electoral harm, and has the job of keeping governments and political actors happy because you know, they tested this protocol that I, I don't want to say it would have stopped. January 6th, or stop, stop the steal. We'll never know that. But according to Facebook's own staffers and political research, might have helped an enforcement tool that was you know, enforced more aggressively, but had this consequence of punishing conservative speech more when it was turned on in the United States, you know, basically created this panic that the entire enforcement system needed to be shut down. And, you know, one person told me, all kinds of important stuff like this was blocked. I'm, I'm, I'm reading a quote now from someone familiar with this work and said, would this policy have made a difference on January 6th? Who knows? But they said the sum total of this work that was blocked could have really made a difference. And, and in a moment like this, right, you have to remember that these policies are global. And so this person says, you know, in the Indian context, right, if you ask the majority of people in the world, should we have not have done these things so that one political party in the United States would feel happier? They would say, I live in Bangladesh. I don't fucking care. Please do the thing. This is someone on civic integrity who told me this. And Facebook would later say they made these changes to policy because it would make it defensible. But this person told me, basically raised the question of defensible to whom, right? That still 
is the rub. And this person said, its defensibility is to a political part and a certain political movement, in this case, a very narrow political movement in the United States. And they said, you know, what you can see in this episode of a policy in India, you know, having vast consequences and changing the way that Facebook enforced policy in the United States was that, you know, he's basically said the entire world was held hostage to one political party in one country, you know, because applying this rule in India had ramifications on the American conservative right in the United States, the entire global policy basically had to change. And that was a really powerful example, both of what it means to give one person so much power, both in political speech and government affairs, but also how decisions, you know, years in advance, you know, can unfold in ways that, that have unforeseen consequences, including potentially in, in the event of in the instance of January 6th. You know, there are other types of small decisions, you know, it's like a, you know, trying to look at who's responsible for January 6th and the, you know, Facebook's role. And it's like going through the forensics of an airplane crash. You know, there's just so much there. And in fact, we now know that um, the January 6th special committee in Washington has subpoenaed Facebook. And so Facebook may come under scrutiny for that reason. There are people in Washington who also want to know what Facebook's specific role was, you know, in the lead up and the decisions that were made. But just to give one example, you know, we know that, um, you know, there was a debate inside Facebook just ahead of January 6th about the break glass measures. Facebook employed these break the glass measures that in many ways look like some of the things that the staffers wanted to do two years before in common ground. These break glass measures were about reducing partisanship. They were about, you know, stopping the amplification and virality of, you know, more fringe news sites and amplifying the viral reach of, you know, cooler headed, just the facts, mainstream publications. Those were some of the break clash measures, measures there were others. And there was a brief debate um, inside Facebook in which the head of product, John Hegeman, you know, floated the idea that, hey, maybe we can make these break class measures permanent. This is reported by the New York Times. And there on the other side was a contingent that said, no, you know, let's, let's restore Facebook back to what it was. And Kaplan was one of those, you know, one of the more prominent people making that argument to cancel the break class measures against argument to make them permanent. So is there any one decision? We'll never know. But Kaplan and his philosophy, you know, is very much clearly on offer, you know, in almost all of the major key decisions, you know, that get made throughout 2020 and before. So I've looked at this question a bunch of different ways as well and around January 6th and Facebook's role. And, you know, despite Nick Clegg's arguments that people want to try to pin January 6th on Facebook, somehow that's never really been what it's about for me. It's about, did Facebook exacerbate the situation? Did Facebook make it worse? And did it do it for profit? But I have two last questions. One is about Nick Clegg, who has been elevated into this global policy position. Do you believe that signals anything about Kaplan's role? And then my last question is, you've talked about how much power has been imbued into Joel Kaplan's role and how much impact that's had in the world. But, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has given him that power. So on some level, he represents Zuckerberg. He represents Zuckerberg's will. Do you think that ultimately what we've seen here reflects on Zuckerberg's core politics? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and the two questions are married, actually, in, in that way. And so, you know, people who have worked with Kaplan closely, you know, staffers still at Facebook, don't believe for a second that Clegg's promotion, such as it is, has anything to do with diminishing Kaplan's role, both in you know, deciding these really close 
call questions, shaping, you know, algorithmic speech policies, but also putting out fires in Washington. So, you know, it's a way that it's been explained to me is, you know, Clegg's promotion is this is additive in many ways, but doesn't come at, at the expense of Kaplan. You know, there are people who actually think that, and I'm not some expert, but that if anything, it might come at the expense of Zuckerberg's role, uh, Zuckerberg taking a less public role as, as sort of a global diplomat. If anything, I, you know, one person told me that, you know, far from diminishing Kaplan's role, Clegg getting this sort of big promotion might actually give, even, you know, might give cover basically to, to Kaplan's role. So much of, you know, the, the operational value of what Kaplan is doing is, you know, very sotto voce and I don't want to say secretive, but he's the opposite of a public person. You know, he's almost given no interviews to the press, you know, occasionally will testify to, to foreign governments, but it's not a name like Sheryl, Sheryl Sandberg that people know. And that's precisely, you know, both how Zuckerberg and Kaplan would prefer it. And it, it dovetails perfectly with your second question, which is, you know, you're, I think you're absolutely right. One of the reasons that this is not a story, as some people have framed it, you know, of Kaplan sort of being a nefarious string puller, you know, and dickying around with the gears of Facebook behind people's back, you know, Kaplan and Zuckerberg, you know, have, you know, as close to a mind meld, you know, maybe as, as one could, could imagine. Lots of people have sort of speculated that it's come at some the, at the expense of Sandberg who's sort of fallen out of favor, perhaps in sort of Zuckerberg's inner circle, but that Kaplan is most definitely in Zuckerberg's inner circle. Their relationship is very close. Someone who knows both men said, you know, the relationship is almost it's hard to describe, but tantamount to that of a big brother. You know, Kaplan's a Harvard grad, you know, um, he's a generation older than Zuckerberg. You know, he has shepherded Zuckerberg's ascent in Washington sort of to the summit of power. I mean, you know, we talk in our story, you know, about this charm offensive that Zuckerberg wages in Washington throughout 2019. And a lot of that has to do with Kaplan. And so, you know, you asked earlier, you know, the, the surprise that some people have that Kaplan has remained in his role, even when Democrats took unified control of Washington. And that, you know, you might think that there'd be some turnover politically um, in terms of who's running Facebook's team in Washington, if you have, you know, a, a tried and true conservative, basically, at the head of your Washington office. And Facebook has changed none of its leadership. And a lot of that speaks to, you know, this famous culture that you've documented and written about, about, you know, the value of loyalty, you know, around Zuckerberg at the highest echelons. But a lot of it speaks to just, I think at this point, the bond, the sheer strength of that bond between Kaplan and Mark, between Joel and Mark, you know, that, that relationship is real. You know, loyalty can trump a lot of things at Facebook, including, you know, um, the vicissitudes of politics in Washington. And who knows, you know, not much longer, you know, if Republicans take back parts of Congress as they are projected right now to do, then it will have made sense perhaps to have kept Kaplan in his, in his role. But, um, you know, it has come at some cost. We have seen this year in the Biden administration, no softening of the White House's stance toward Facebook. If anything, it's hardened. And President Biden specifically calling out Facebook by name and chastising them in the State of the Union and inviting Francis Haugen as a guest in the Congressional Gallery was seen by people who are very familiar with um, how Facebook interacts with the White House, you know, is just a huge shot across the bow. Whether or not, uh, you know, 
Mark agrees that he's getting the value that he wants out of his Washington team, you know, in this relationship with this Congress is a, you know, a question only Mark Zuckerberg and God, you know, really know. It speaks to the strength of that bond and trust that he'd be willing to keep not just Kaplan, but the entire you know, leadership team in Washington, including Kaplan's deputy, uh, Kevin Martin, in Washington, you know, despite those headwinds. You know, someone told me that any other company would have fired their entire Washington staff by now, but they haven't. Um, and I think part of that is that Kaplan does bring value. He will bring value again when Republicans take back Washington. But part of it is, I think, what by all accounts is a very deep bond. That's personal um, and was forged in the fires of controversy and scandal spanning Cambridge Analytica to George Floyd to January 6th. I think loyalty counts for a lot. Well, we'll see what event is the next point in that history, I suppose. But Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through your piece. Yeah, that was fun. I hope we can do it again sometime. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.